0: Faith can feel really risky. Maybe that's something that resonates with you. Maybe you, you feel that, and maybe, maybe you don't as much. But I know for me, I first really, I think, started feeling that when I started going through some, some challenging times in my life when it comes to my faith. And something I've been pretty open with, with here and, and shared with you, that, that, that I am, even though I'm a pastor, I am a doubter by nature. I hear something, and my brain immediately thinks of the counterpoint and the counter-argument. Like, it just, it just jumps to it right away. And, and I've had some, some pretty serious seasons in my life of, of doubt, of, of questioning God. And, and, and through those, God has brought me through and taught me incredible things and, and really grown me in amazing ways. And I'm so thankful for what I've learned through them. But in the middle of them, they've been hard. And I remember, I remember thinking, uh, having this thought, like, man, realizing, you know, I have based all of who I am on what I believe. Right? My, my identity, my worth, my purpose in life, what I'm doing, like what I'm up to, like everything. It, it's, it's all based on what I believe. It's all based on something that I can't see. It's risky. It, it, there's a lot of weight to that, you know? And like I said, God has brought me through in those incredible ways, and I, I am so thankful for what faith is now, but today... You know, we're not, we're not here to talk about like those seasons of doubt that I had and what I learned from those. We can talk about those another time. I love to talk about that and, and to share what I've learned there. Today, we're here to explore and to lean into though this question. Okay, why faith? You know, why do it this way? You know, why not just just do it in a in a way that seems simpler, where God just like boom appears to us in worship and tells us what He wants and and, and proves it to us in these these very simple ways. Why not do it that way? Today, we're going to explore the question. I'm not expecting we're going to answer every one of your questions about faith. My my, my guess is there may still be plenty of lingering ones, but we're going to spend some time wading into it a bit, exploring it a bit, exploring how faith works so we might ponder, why why faith? Why, from God's perspective, faith? And why, why is it such a great, beautiful thing for us? Why faith? Lesson we have today, it's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now to get us some of the backstory to see where our lesson's coming from today, we're going to watch just the first couple minutes of the Bible Project's outline video of the book of Hebrews.
1: The Letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah and they made a covenant with God, where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories. And so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First there's a short introduction which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah. Second, with Moses and the Promised Land. Third, with priests and Melchizedek. And lastly, with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to (coughs) abandon Jesus.
0: Uh, we stopped the video right there because they go into a great detail as the video goes, and it's a very helpful video. If, if you're studying Hebrews, I, I encourage you to watch the whole thing. But it's just, it's just more detail than we need today um, for what we are, are focusing in on. It would be good for us, though, to have just a basic sense of what these sections are about. That would be helpful as we, we think about our lesson going forward. They, they, they mention the, the, the different sections that are being referred to, the different events from the Old Testament. In chapters 1 and 2, um, it talks about... about angels and the Torah. So in other words, the giving of God's law. Like okay, in the Old Testament you have the giving of God's law that this is wonderful, God's law is great, but here you have the Word made flesh in Jesus. He's better. He's God himself come to you in person and speaking God's truth. In the second section, Moses in the promised land, there's an incredible promise that God would bring his people into that, that land, that land flowing with milk and honey. Well, now you have something even better. Jesus came through death and he rose. You have resurrection ahead. You have new life. You have new creation ahead of you. He's by far even better than that. In chapters 5 to 7, it talks about priests and then Melchizedek, and Melchizedek being that, that really curious priest that, that lived even before the Old Testament, excuse me, the nation of Israel's priesthood was established. With both of those really bringing out that, okay, in the Old Testament, there was this relationship that these people had, this role they had of going between God and the people. They would go to God on the people's behalf. Well, you have an even greater priest now. Jesus, God himself, became a person. He gets you. He gets your struggles. He gets your challenges. But he's different than anybody else because he never sinned. He is the ultimate priest. And because he never sinned, when he goes to the Father in your behalf, he gives you full access to God. The priests in the Old Testament were great. They worked on behalf of the people. You have the ultimate priest in Jesus. He gives you access to the Father. And he gets you because he's a person. He's a person. He gets you, but he also gives you access. It's incredible. And then in chapters 8 to 10, talking about the sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were, were, were taking place there in the tabernacle, in the temple, so that there would be this, this holy place, this most holy place, which is where God would really come and his presence would dwell, and it's how the people could know God was there among them. Well, you had this great holy place in the Old Testament, but now you have full, not just the priests get to go to the holy place, you and I and all of us through faith in Jesus have full access to the presence of God. God lives inside of us, and someday we're going to live perfectly in the holiest place with God in paradise. That was great in the Old Testament, but this, this is better what Jesus has now accomplished for us. Like the narrator in the video pointed out, he, the, the, the writer here is highlighting all these things and highlighting that Jesus is better but also encouraging the people not to, not to shrink back as you face persecution. Not to shrink back as you face these challenges and these trials. One, because Jesus is better, but also there's this interesting thing that he does. These, these stories or these reviews of these Old Testament events, they, they, they serve to highlight that Jesus is even better than these things, but they also serve as object lessons or real-life example lessons of what shrinking back looks like and how foolish it is. Because see, when you go back and you look at uh, the the giving of the law, the giving of the commandments, okay? When they give the commandments, when the commandments are given and Moses is up on, on the mountain, and the people are waiting for Moses and he's not moving as quickly as they want, do you remember what the people do at the base of the mountain? And parents, uh, kids, maybe I don't, you might remember this from your, your, your Sunday school lessons, families at home who are, who are worshiping. Do you remember what the people did at the base of the mountain when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments? What did they do? The golden calf, right? Here they are getting the, the Ten Commandments are there, then the full law, the, 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 the scriptures here are coming forward, and they shrink back and worship a false god. The second one, and this is the picture that resonates the most, most for me, is is that... When the people are about to, they're, 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 they're moving forward with God and they have the opportunity to soon enter the promised land. And these are the people, the Israelite people, who have passed through the Red Sea. They've, got, they've seen God do the miraculous. And they're, they're, they're there and they send these spies into the promised land to check it out. And the spies come back. And do you know what most of the spies say? They say, the people of the land are too big. We cannot take it. I mean, here they just saw God do the ten plagues and part the sea, and yet they see these big people in the land, and they, they, they shrink back. Two of them are like, no, nah, God's on our side. Let's go. Let's do this. But most of them, we can't do it. And that's actually why they wander in the wilderness for so long. It's Not because God just said, you know what, I want you to wander for a while. It's because when they were given the opportunity to step forward, they shrunk back. And you see this repeated theme in here. And so there are these pictures of, look what you have in front of you. Look what you're given. Don't shrink back. Don't do that. Step forward. And in order to step forward, what what do you need to step forward in? How does it work? It works with faith. You have to step forward with faith. And our lesson comes in the early verses of chapter 11, which is this incredible faith chapter in this letter to the Hebrews, in this book of the Hebrews. Sometimes people will call it the heroes of faith chapter. I'm always hesitant with the term the heroes of the Bible or the heroes of faith, because if you look through, the majority of the people who are called heroes, often they have intense character flaws and at times do really awful things. Most of the, the, the characters in the Bible are horrendously flawed. But they're listed in this chapter. Why? Because through faith, God still at times did incredible things through them and, and, and gave them incredible things and empowered them in incredible ways. So how does that work though? If they're so horrendously flawed, how does God work these incredible things? Why are they listed in this chapter? It's because of what faith is. And that's if we're going to talk about why faith today, it's important for us to really be clear on what faith is and what it's about. The, the, the dictionary definition of faith, at least the way of faith is in the, in, in the original languages and in the Greek language there, it literally means to be persuaded of something. Now, I find that really helpful to be, to to remember, because up until a few years ago, I realized my idea of faith was a bit off. I thought faith was like, like, kind of like a power you had. You know, like, you got to have faith. You know, or more kind of like a feeling or a sense. It's something that you kind of work up. Like, okay, you gotta work up enough faith. But faith is not a power. It's definitely not a feeling. It's not. There's power in faith, but it's really not about you. It's it's something that you're persuaded of. It's about the object of your faith. It's about what you've been persuaded to believe in and persuaded to see is trustworthy. Because faith is about the object of your faith. That's why. That's why faith can be so powerful, even though we are so often so weak. A few weeks ago, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a month or so ago, now I don't remember exactly when it was, but there was a lesson about faith being the size of a mustard seed. That was the Sunday that here in Cottage Grove, Pastor uh, Sukup was here filling in. Um, he's going to be back again uh, next weekend, so you can greet him back here next week, and we're happy to have him back. Um, I was in, Co- in, in Fort Atkinson, and uh, in, in Fort Atkinson, our theme that day was, how do I have a mountain-moving faith? And one of the things with that lesson that it brings out is that faith, it's not its not about me having this super big faith in order for God to do incredible things. Just the smallest sliver of, 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 of belief that Jesus is Lord and that he's my Savior is enough to save and it's enough to move mountains because it's faith in the one who moves mountains. And faith isn't about me. It's about the one I believe in, have faith in. Faith is about what you're persuaded of or who you're persuaded in. So that's more the dictionary definition of faith. If you get to verse 1 though of our lesson, we get more of a functional explanation of faith. So functionally, how does faith work? What does it look like? How does it play out? In verse 1 of chapter 11 it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Some cool pictures here in the original language. When it says that faith is being sure of what we hope for, the words being sure, they literally mean being supporting under. That's what they literally mean is to support under. So you think of like a bridge or something, how you have these beams to support it. That's what holds it up. Faith is the support for your hope. And biblically, hope is never just, oh, I hope something happens. Hope is always, it's referring to expectation. It's what you are expecting to happen. Faith, what you are persuaded of, is the support for what you are expecting to happen, how you are expecting God to move, and what you're expecting God to do. Faith is the support for your expectation. But then it's also the proof for what you do not see. Which isn't interesting, a lot of times when people want to have faith, we want to have proof in order to have faith. But this says that faith is the proof. Now, does that mean that the, that the author here, that, that God has inspired the author here to tell us that, that you don't have any proof or any evidence for faith? No. What he's talking about, though, is that, that faith itself ultimately becomes the proof. It might seem like a weird concept, but if you think about it, this is, this is how evidence works. For instance, let's imagine you're having a, a conversation with someone who has a very different opinion on something than you, which is probably something that has happened in 2020 because there are a lot of various opinions about various things going on in the world right now. And let's imagine someone has been putting evidence before you, like there are various reasons for this thing or that thing or that thing. And as they're putting these in front of you, they don't seem like proof. They don't seem like evidence. But then, all of a sudden, they say something and it clicks. You ever had that? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe, maybe you never get convinced of something else somebody else says. Maybe we got to flip it the other way. And if, have you ever been sharing things with somebody else? And it clicks, and you see it, and the dot connects. And then all of a sudden, all the things you just presented, all the proof, becomes evidence. So it's really not the proof in and of itself. Like, you, you can have all the evidence in front of you in the world. You can present all the evidence to a person in the world. But until it clicks, it means nothing to them. Someone can present all the evidence in the world to you, but until it clicks, it's not proof. Once it clicks, once the dots connect, then it's proof. Faith is the proof of what you do not see. Now, on this slide, I've included verses 2 to 3, because as I was reading Hebrews this week, and as I was studying and really just chewing on Hebrews... I noticed something. I had a dot. I had something click that has never clicked before, and it's amazing. And it really helps me understand the rest of this chapter so much better than I ever have before, and I just have to show it to you. In verse 1, it says how faith is is the the proof of what we do not see. Well, in verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Do you see the similarity? The connection between verse 1, what it's talking about, and how it's describing faith? And then verse 3? See, I always thought of verse 3 as being like, okay, this is the first example of how people have faith. And, and, And it is, and at the same time, it's bringing out something about how all these other examples of faith work. Faith is... The proof of what we do not see. By faith, we know that God created out of not what was visible. He did not, or He made things, excuse me, so that what was seen was not made of what was visible. The way faith works is that we recognize, we've been persuaded that I don't have to see what God is going to do. I don't have to see. For God to create. God created. Everything I see wasn't here when God made the world. He made it at that point. Out of what was invisible, he made what is now visible. I don't have to see what God is going to do. I don't have to see how God is going to do it. I don't have to see how he's going to move things forward. As a matter of fact, what I see might not look anything like what God is going to do. It all started with nothing, and God made everything. God is not restricted by what I see going forward. And if you think about all the examples of faith that go through chapter 11 of Hebrews, and I really do encourage you to read through it this week. With all these people, you have people who who were persuaded that God was not restricted by what they saw. Noah, they give the example of Noah, building the ark for like a century, by the way. It takes him a long, long time to build the ark. The flood didn't come till the end. It's not like he saw the waters rising and, oh, I better get to work on the boat. He believed that God was able to bring the waters even though he didn't see it. Abraham, this says right out, he didn't know where he was going. But he was persuaded that God was able to do it even though he couldn't see it. Rachel, she was old. She shouldn't be having a child. And yet she believed she was persuaded that God was able to do it when it, she couldn't see away. All these examples, and what at the core of them is, is the belief that God is able to create, and God is able to do good. God is able to come through on His promise, regardless of what I see. He is not restricted by what I see. Faith, faith is being persuaded being persuaded in such a way that it supports what we are expecting, what we are hoping for. It is the proof that God is able to create and able to do and able to come through regardless of what I see. Now, as we get more specifically into our lesson, our verse itself, our verse, one of the things we've got to realize, first of all, is that it's really, it's really the second half of a thought, or it's kind of a sidebar even, of a statement about an Old Testament figure named Enoch. Now, Enoch is a very curious figure in the Old Testament. We don't know a lot about him, um, but he comes early on in the Old Testament um, and he is listed as it's going through and it's talking about how this person lived and then this person died and this person lived and this person died and then all of a sudden you have Enoch and it says this person lived, and he walked with God, and then he was no more. Wait, what? This man, Enoch, had such a unique relationship with God that God decided that instead of having him suffer regular physical death, he simply took him into his presence, into heaven. Whoa. I would like to know more about that life, right? We don't get many details, but what we know is that it's incredible, and that it's amazing, had this incredible, unique relationship with God. But the connecting point to our lesson, it, our lesson isn't so much, okay, let's explore and ponder uh, Enoch's life, but rather recognize that there was a means by which Enoch pleased God, that God was happy with this relationship. And our verse talks about the, the, the crucial part to pleasing God, to, to having God be happy. Our lesson says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the necessary component. Now, as you think about pleasing God, I want to make sure we think about it the right way. It's not like, okay, this is something God says, okay, in order to meet my requirement, you have to have faith. I encourage you to think of, of, of pleasing God as in, in a very different setting, a very different context. Uh, maybe maybe some of you guys who are married maybe this will res maybe this is something that, that is a memory that you have. Um, I've got a picture here of a of a man proposing to a woman, and I got to tell you one of my one of my best moments in my life was when um, when I proposed to Stella, and. Um, when, uh, when I proposed to her, and I got down on the knee, and I pointed over, I had carved Mary Me and some stones by the waterfall. And anyway, we don't need to get into all the details of it. You can watch Hallmark movies later today if you want to, you know, get all the sappy stuff. Um, anyway, my, my favorite mo- part, part about that moment, though, was when, when I got the ring out, she jumped, hands up, and squealed. And it, like to see her excitement just... My heart was so full. This is how we are to think about God being pleased with our faith. Not just, okay, this is what you gotta do to meet my requirement and make me happy. God is just delighted with faith. And they pastor, why do we look at it that way? Well, we'll see it more as we get through our lesson. We can see what God is really wanting and how God's heart is, is, is what he is what it is and what God is really looking for here. That it's not just a requirement to come through to get here, but God is delighted at our faith. Faith just brings him so much joy. It brings him so much joy because faith is, is the key component to anybody coming to him. God wants us to come to him. And just by reading the statement you could see this. You could see our verse that says anyone who comes to him. But if you read through the book of Hebrews you can see that this is a repeated theme of, of being able to come to God. There's a couple examples in some of these earlier chapters that that, that give us some some context that really flesh out the beauty of coming to God. Chapter 4 is that chapter, again, where, where it's talking about Jesus being the great high priest who one gets us, but then also is that perfect high priest who makes it so that we have access to God. And in that chapter, it talks about Coming to God with confidence so we might receive help, that we might receive mercy, so that we might receive grace. God wants us, it, it delights Him. When we come to Him, Father, we, we need you, we need help, we need you, we need, we need your forgiveness, we need your grace. He loves it when we come to Him, when we take His invitation to approach the throne boldly with whatever we need. He loves it. In chapter 5, we get, we get, excuse me, chapter 10, we get a similar beautiful picture that, that, that builds off of it. You get, that's that section that's talking about the sacrifices and how in, in, in the Old Testament, remember there were those sacrifices that made it so that priests could enter into God's presence, but then also you can know that God was present there amidst the people of Israel. God wants us to be wholly, fully in his presence. He wants to be with us. He wants us to come and to be with him. He doesn't want there to be division. He doesn't want us to be separate. He wants us to be together. This is what he delights in. I mean, this is what the whole gospel is about. God created everything where we were to be together and to walk together and to live together. Sin threw that all out of whack, messed it all up. When Adam and Eve sinned, one of the things when you read through that, that whole account, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do right away? They hid from God. It literally says that they hid from his face, which is where God's favor is shown. They hid from the goodness of God. Sin separated us from God. Because God, being a good, loving, perfect God, has got to be justice for sin. Okay, so now there's an issue. If God loves people and and, and there's got to be justice, then what? how do we be right with him if there's got to be justice? Sin causes this issue because we can't be with god because if god's in a perfect place then we can't be there because how can imperfect people be in a perfect place the gospel remedies all of this jesus god himself came to took your sin take your sin and mine on himself to absorb the justice so all the justice would be met He gave his life so his blood could cleanse us from sins, just like those Old Testament sacrifices. But he didn't just stay dead. He rose again so his new life could give us new life. So we could have a new identity. So we could be new people in God's eyes. So we could be a new clean space where God meets us and so that we could someday go and meet God in his perfect clean space. Jesus came so we could have access to God and God could be with us. This is what God wants. This is what, God, what is on God's heart. God loves faith because faith is key to us coming and being with him. And that's what he wants. That's what's his heart. That's what's the center of the whole gospel message is God wants us with him. God wants us to come to him, and faith is crucial to that because anyone who comes to him must believe. I'm going to stop there with the word must for a minute because, again, that can feel like, okay, this is a requirement. If you want to come to God, then you have to believe and do this. But the word in original language, it actually describes being bound together or knit together. So in other words, coming to God is intimately connected with... The rest of this verse, believing that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The two things come together. It's kind of like saying, okay, um, kind of like saying that. On, say on on later today when you see kids out here in, in costumes and things for for trunk or treat, you might say, oh, there's a whole bunch of kids out here with costumes. Trunk or treat must have started. That's not. You're not saying a requirement. You're saying this is something. These two things go together. One equals the other. This is kind of. This is the idea with this verse. Is that coming to him is intimately connected with believing that he exists. And it's interesting, the original language, when it says, when it's translated he exists, it literally just says he is. He must believe that he is. I don't know about you, it strikes that strikes me differently than saying must believe that he exists. You know, just, you got to believe that God exists. You must believe it is intimately connected that you believe that God is. I think it strikes me because, I mean, you know, today we could say it's true that God is. But when the writer wrote this 2,000 years ago, it was just as true that you could say God is. And if it's God's will that this world is here just like it is in another 2,000 years, this statement will still be just as true. God is. He doesn't change. He's all, he always is. He's always God. He's always powerful. He's always there. He's always good. He's always God. God coming to him is, is not just coming before him thinking, okay, he might exist. It's not just thinking about what I'm looking for to get from God, but, but God wants us to know that he is, that he is God. God wants more than just for us to seek out being where he is or or getting what he can do. The end of our verse says that God wants people to seek him. To find out, to, to experience that he is real and he is really God. And perhaps it's here where we can see more of why faith? Why, why not the easier route? You know, I, 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 I'll be first to admit that, that there have been times where I have uh, really wished that God would just, like, show himself to me. You know, like, maybe, maybe like when I've been going through some hard times and I've been out walking the dog, and I don't know if you guys have figured this out, most of my, my, my greatest theological ponderings take place while I'm walking the dog. <laughs> um, and, uh, be walking Sibley out in the neighborhood and sometimes, especially when I get back by like Willow Run Park where it's kind of quieter, I'd be back there and I'd be like, you know, God, if you could just like show up right here in the trees and just, you know, just give me some evidence of this, that would be a lot simpler. You know, why? Why not? I think maybe here is where we can see some of why. Because while we might think that, okay, God's showing up in a way that we can see would be helpful. God wants us to really know that he is and that he is God. And what God brings out in his word again and again is the way we really experience him and that he is real is often through the times when it is hardest to see what he is doing and where it's hardest to see how he's going to work it all out. I I just put a few examples up here. There's so many more, but just think, for instance, of Job. In the Old Testament, where Job loses 10 children and basically all of his wealth, and it's just, I can't even fathom the amount of loss, and yet, it's there through that experience where Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. We talked about this lesson, I think, about six weeks or so ago, maybe, something like that. And Job did have, where he actually did get to see God some, but it's really the words of God that really, when the words of God came and, and, and encountered Job's life, Job goes, Ah, I see you differently now, God. Or like in Psalm 34, when it says that God's close to the brokenhearted, it's often when we're brokenhearted and things don't make sense that we experience God's closeness in a different real way. Or like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he says that, that God said to him that his grace was sufficient for him, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's often when we're weak, when we can't see a way that God's power is most on display. And my guess is if if you evaluate your life, because I know I've seen it in mine, it's often when God, when I can't see what he's doing, when I can't see a way, when I can't see how this makes sense or how this can be good, it's often then that I, as I speak the gospel to my heart, as I turn to him in prayer, as, as the gospel, as the good news of him, carries me through, it's then that I see God in a very different, more real, deeper way. God wants us to experience who he really is, that he is. And it seems like the greatest way that he does that is when we need faith, when we need to be persuaded, be persuaded that he is able to do great things even when we can't see it. God wants us to have that faith so we come to him, so that we know who he really is, and because he wants to reward us. And again, when we think about the word reward, again, we've got to be careful with how we think about it. It's not that God's like, okay, do all these great things and then I'm going to reward you, think of it more like a gift. God has a gift he wants to give you. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe a great example, of this would be the Old Testament people, when they're getting ready to, to go into the, to, to the promised land. God had made a promise. He's going to give them the promised land, right? That's why it's called the promised land, I guess. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to do anything to earn it. Like, it's already been. God already promised it. He just wants to give it to them. So, if they were to trust him and go through the process, they would receive it. This would be the reward. Not that they had to do anything to earn God's favor, but rather this was simply the process to go through to receive the reward. In the same sort of way, God wants, He wants to give us the gift, He wants to reward us. So, how does God reward us? What kind of rewards does God want to give? If you look later in the chapter, in chapter 11, it talks about all these different people of faith. And it says that they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were longing for something better. And you know what? It, it, it's, it's here. This is where that dot that connected before that I mentioned, this is, this is where all of a sudden like, all, it all lit up for me. And I just hope I can communicate it clearly. It's just so beautiful how this all ties together. The people were hoping for a better country, right? Why faith? If our understanding of God was based on what we could see, it would always be limited by what we can see. You know, and and I don't know about you, but I look around and what do I see in our world this year? I see a mess. You know, I, I don't think I've ever seen, it's ever been clear to my eyes that the country we live in is broken and the world we live in has all kinds of problems and it's fragile and it's frail. I don't want to be limited by what I can see. And if our understanding, if our relationship with God was based on him showing us who he is visibly like that, it would always be limited by what we can see. But God... God loves to give us the gift of faith by the power of the Spirit so that we might be persuaded that he is able to do good and to fulfill his promise and it has nothing to do with what we see. You see a messed up world, you see terrible things happening, so does God. And God says, don't be limited by that. I can do what I say I'm going to do because I'm not limited by what you see. I'm going to give you a better world. I can make a way when you can't see a way. I can do good when all you see is mess. I can do what you can't see. That's what faith is. Believing that God can do what we can't see, what we can't foresee, what we can't understand, that's what faith is. And God wants us to have faith, because he wants to reward us with what we can never do ourselves. And what we cannot see he wants to carry us through and make ways that we cannot see he wants to give us an eternity that we can never earn he wants to give us something better that's why faith that's why faith is such a gift And today as we're wrapping up this message as we're wrapping up this study just want to take a quick moment to celebrate what faith and realizing what the gift of faith is can look like in real life. I don't know if you guys have realized looking at the calendar today would be the day in church here we typically celebrate Reformation Sunday. It's that where we celebrate a little over 500 years ago. Um, Martin Luther, this is one of many Reformation events, but this is the one that kind of kick-started it in a bigger way where he posted the 95 theses. But he was living in a time where the church got faith completely backwards. The church said, okay, if you do I want to see you do these things, and I want to see you give these things, and then you can be right with God. It's totally opposite of what faith really is. We want to see you do this, we want to see you give this, then you can be right with God. But some people, and Martin Luther being one of them, after studying the Bible realized that's not how it's meant to be. Faith is about God doing what we can't do. We can't make God. We can't please God. We can't buy ourselves. We can't do. We can't make ourselves right with God. God had to do it for us. Faith is about being persuaded that He can do what we can't. Which is why people like Martin Luther and people in the Reformation saw that it was worth it to risk it all, to go forward in faith, because God could do what we can't in making us right with Him, and God can give us what we can never earn. And it's worth the risk. And you and I today, we get to step forward in that same tradition, realizing God has done for us what we can't. He has set us right with him. Jesus has died for us, washed us clean. The Spirit has worked in us so that we can come to him and experience the real God who's better than anything we see and who wants to give us more than anything we can see. He wants to make a way when we can't see it. He wants to carry us when we can't see it. And he wants to give us a life, a world that is better than anything we can see. He wants to give us greater. He wants to give us That is why